Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Emery Munoz was last seen on a crisp LA winter day, a Friday afternoon in January of 2006. Do you have memories of that day? Um, yeah, um, I we were all getting ready for school, myself, my brother, my sister. Crystal, her younger sister, was six. They used to share a room, and I used to sleep in the next room with my mom, and um, I remember I woke up and they were yelling at each other, my brother and my sister, and I was like, what's happening, you know? And then my mom went over and she was like, why are you guys fighting? Uh, they were fighting because my brother unplugged her straightener to plug in his Game Boy and they got in like the biggest fight ever. Crystal was young, but she remembers the energy of that morning, of the last day she saw her sister. The kind of explosive feelings I remember having as a teen whenever anybody moved my stuff. The last memory that Crystal has of her older sister isn't from that fight that morning. Later that afternoon, after school, it was right before she left that day. I looked outside. We had a really long hallway. And at the end of the door, um, we can see like that garden that I had told you about that we had. It was a big, lush garden filled with flowers on one of the highest hills in City Terrace. It's where her big sister taught her to dance. We had like a, a wall. I remember she was sitting on it. She was sitting on it and um, she was wearing a white, that white hoodie that she had and some jeans. And, like, there's no context behind it, you know? I just, I remember I looked and I seen her sitting on that wall. What I do remember, it's uh, my aunt next door. She said that she saw her through her window. That's Becky, Emery's aunt and godmother, her Nina. She says a family member saw Emery that afternoon, standing outside of the house. My aunt said that she saw Emery inside the fence and this guy outside the fence talking. And then she said that next time she looked, they were gone. She saw Emery talking to a friend. It was reported at the time that he was a member of a male party crew. According to Emery's mother, 
Emery left to go to a friend's house and said she would be back by 7.30 or 8 p.m. When her mom got home from the market, Emery wasn't there. The next morning, Emery's mom reported her missing. I remember those copies, the flyers. I remember we were walking around putting them up. Crystal remembers they went looking for Emery and posting flyers in the area. She remembers walking down the street by her house. I remember we put one on a red pole. And we were just, it was an all-night thing. Like, it was dark. I remember it being dark. I remember it being cold. We were just going up and down the streets, putting them on. Um, and I think, I think it was the next day. I was calling her cell phone, and I remember I was in her room, and I was calling her phone, and I think I maybe left her about 20 voicemails that day. Crystal assumed that Emery ran away because she was mad at their brother, John. And I remember I was calling her and I was like, you could come home now. John's not mad at you anymore. Can you come home? Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old... Oh, yeah. 
And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. There are a lot of questions about what happened to Emery that night, where she went, and why she didn't come home. Emery Munoz's lifeless body was found nearby this warehouse on Marisol and Olympic in Boyle Heights, a popular area for underground parties. Emery's murder was quickly connected to the party crew scene by the LAPD and the media. Her killing, they think she was strangled, now tied to the world of illegal underground parties. She went to one and never came home. Well, this is exactly the kind of industrial neighborhood where a rave promoter can find a warehouse to use for a night. In fact, it was here on Mirasol, just south of Olympic, where a 14-year-old girl was found dead. Emery's link to the party crew world was part of why her murder got a lot of media attention. Emery reportedly was part of a crew of girls who attended underground parties. The vicious ladies are among the local party crews with their own websites and party lines. Vicious Ladies was the name of the party crew Emery belonged to. They think her murder may be connected to an underground rave party. But what evidence was there that her murder was tied to party crews? And why is her case still unsolved? I want to understand what happened with the investigation. What's clear? And what remains a mystery to this day? A warning that this episode gets graphic and talks in detail about a violent death. On Wednesday morning, January 25th, 2006, and six days after Emery went missing, an employee of a warehouse in Boyle Heights who went to go pick up some lumber found Emery's body. She was less than five miles away from her home. Becky got the call with the news when she was at work. I don't even remember. I just remember going crazy and hysterical and... The customer came and tried to calm me down, but then everybody else started coming to my office. And then my supervisor wouldn't let me drive home by myself and stuff. So my son came and picked me up, and then that's when we went over there. And uh, it's just crazy. I mean, it's like you're trying to think that it's a nightmare that you're having. Um, You just can't believe it. That's when the investigation began. I remember it so vividly uh, because this was one of the times where you didn't expect to be called out on a suspicious death, especially involving a child. This is Carrie Ricard. He's a former LAPD homicide detective. He retired in 2013 after working for LAPD for over 35 years. He still volunteers as a reserve officer. 
He started at the Hollenbeck station in 1979. Most of our homicides here are gang-related. Mm-hmm. Majority of them are. You know, and the victims have either ties to gangs or, you know, maybe even were looking at as a suspect in a murder themselves. As a rule, um, you, you don't get many um, child homicides. I met Carrie at the station in Boyle Heights. Hollenbeck serves the communities surrounding El Sereno, Lincoln Heights, and Boyle Heights. Carrie wore a striped long sleeve button up with a blue tie. He rocked a mustache, and his hair was neatly combed to one side. He also had a gun on his hip. He may be retired, but he still looks like an old school TV detective to me. We met in the afternoon, and by that time, most of the officers had gone home. And in 2006, you were one of the detectives. Yes, I was the original lead detective on the Emery Munoz uh, death. He was the first detective to be called out to the scene where she was found. It was midweek. It was a Wednesday, to be precise. I was at my desk. Uh, the watch commander uh, called up upstairs and uh, told me that uh, the body of a young female had been found in an abandoned warehouse area in our industrial section of the, of the division. When I got to the scene, uh, you know, I knew this was a young girl. I put her at 13 or 14 years old. Emery was 14, just a few months shy of 15. There was a hole in the fence uh, that led from where we parked on the street and uh, walked uh, up the street a little bit to the hole in the fence, through the hole in the fence, back into the loading dock. Kerry was joined by his partner and fellow homicide detective, Joe Preciado. He's also now retired after over 30 years with the LAPD. And that's where uh, Emery's body was located, uh, in the loading dock area. Emery's body was lying on the concrete. She was wearing jeans, white tennis shoes, and a white hoodie. You just remember yeah, kind I, of like... I know she had like, uh, was a Tinkerbell sweatshirt? When the coroner investigator got there and... Um, one of the first things we found was a, a school lunch cart. No picture on it. It had a name on it, and it, was, it turned out to be her card. And so uh, they did some background, found out she had been reported missing. She didn't have a cell phone on her or any type of backpack or purse. So the school lunch card helped them to identify her. And um, the clutter in the loading dock area was a lot of uh, drug paraphernalia. That was were on the ground, I remember. The building had discarded needles. And it was a warehouse the detectives said at the time had been used as a, quote, rave site before. Despite all the litter and dust and dirt around her, her clothes were very clean, even the bottom of her white tennis shoes. So Carrie thought it was likely that she didn't die here, that her body was brought here after her death, maybe even by several people. The chain-link fence nearby had some holes in it, big enough for a person. Carrying a body, though, is awkward. Yeah. And um, you know, one can surmise things from, well, you know, how, how do you carry a body and get it through the hole in the fence and not snag the clothing on exposed chain-link wires and, or not wrinkle the clothing, unless you've got maybe someone helping you. Mm -hmm. At first, the detectives had difficulty understanding what had happened to Emery. One of the issues I had is 
we couldn't determine what she died from. On the scene, it wasn't immediately clear how she had died. At first glance, there was no gunshot or blood on her body. Anything that told him what had happened to Emery or how long she had been dead. There were visible marks around Emery's neck, but it wasn't clear at first if they were the cause of death or if the marks happened after her death. And, um, you know, at first I thought probably would be an overdose. And, but... Why would that, why would that be um, something that comes to mind? Well, when you have no apparent cause of death, you know, when there's, there's no evidence of foul play, I mean, she was impeccably dressed. Her, her clothes weren't dirty. Carrie thought Emery's death might have been an accident. We know that back in that era, that nitrous oxide was widely, widely mm-hmm. being, being used. And different ways of using it, too, where they could put a bag over their head, an elastic band. Oh, that's what they used. How many people used it that way? Well, they could, and then oh. uh, so they could better inhale it. Mm-hmm. I just want to jump in and say, I've watched friends and a lot of different people do NAS, and I've never seen or heard of anyone putting a bag over their head with an elastic band. You know, and, and then the balloons, people yeah. were... Yeah, there's all balloons. sorts of methods, so... Yeah. Carrie thought maybe Emery had accidentally taken too much of something with a friend, and they had panicked and left her body there. If we suspect foul play from the beginning, uh, then we'll handle it as a homicide, even if we don't call it a homicide, such as in Emery's case. To better understand the details of what might have happened to Emery we filed a public records request for the autopsy report. The report was clinical, but there were small details about how she was found that stuck with me. She had her jeans bunched up at the bottom with an elastic band. It was a style thing when I was in high school in the mid-aughts. Rubber bands around the ankles to make her pants slimmer. DIY cuffs for jeans. Her fingers had tan lines, like maybe rings were missing from her hand. She had on a gold chain with a religious pendant, the type of jewelry that's gifted by family. And she had a pair of eyebrow tweezers on her and a Tinkerbell keychain on her belt loop that matched her Tinkerbell hoodie. It reminded me again that she was 14, a teen, a child. And the autopsy would reveal that she hadn't died from an overdose. It was a homicide. It was difficult to say how long Emery had been dead when she was found but she had been strangled. Emery has a cause of death that's listed as asphyxia due to neck compression. This is Denise Bertone. I worked for the coroner's office investigating pediatric deaths for 15 years. And prior to that, I was an emergency room nurse at Los Angeles County Hospital. She specifically worked on deaths involving children, which is anyone under 14 years old. Denise was the coroner investigator who came to the crime scene the day that Emery was found. She's seen over 2,500 cases in her career, but she immediately remembered this case. These don't happen very often. So when you called me, I didn't remember the year it happened, but you called and started talking to me about it, and I can still picture the warehouse, and I can still picture her there. On the scene, Denise did a cursory exam on the body and wrote the initial report. Denise told us it wasn't clear what Emery had been strangled with, but it was likely with something about the width of a shoelace 
at an upward angle. So is it that the perpetrator, her assailant was behind her and a little bit taller than her? That would be a reasonable thing to conclude. She also has on a gold uh, chain, and that chain is not uh, disturbed. It's not broken. Denise also pointed out that the autopsy showed no signs of struggle from Emery. No fingernail marks, no struggling to breathe, no other wounds that were the signs of a fight. We have to wonder about her level of consciousness when this assailant kills her. As part of her work, Denise and her colleagues took all evidence samples. Samples from her fingernails, stains from her clothing, a hair clipping, and a sexual assault kit. I don't know if it was ever run. It would be important to know that it was run. And that it's very important that the DNA is tested. She wonders if any of the samples of DNA from the crime scene were tested. Whether the nail clippings actually were tested and in looking for DNA under her fingernails and whether the DNA that was under her fingernails was put into CODIS. CODIS is a database of DNA that the FBI maintains. If Emery's killer was in the system, it's possible that running the samples would help the police identify them. There are other marks. Like I mentioned, it looked like there was a hickey on her chest. That would have saliva, that would have DNA. Was that actually ran and tested? We asked Joe, one of the former detectives, about the DNA samples that were taken and what had happened with them. I know she had um, um, possible evidence underneath her fingernails. So that was one of the requests that I had made. Uh, that DNA, to be tested. But unfortunately, I didn't come up with a suspect. At the time, uh, the amount of DNA that they had, uh, they were unable to, do, to identify anyone with that amount. We reached out to LAPD about any DNA evidence in her case, and they wouldn't share anything about the investigation. But later on, a detective supervisor for the cold case unit told us that any DNA evidence that was taken had been put into CODIS, the national database for DNA, but there hadn't yet been a match. I asked Denise, the coroner investigator, what does she think happened? This is something that we've been uh, just asking everyone who has touched the case in some way. If they personally have a theory based on the autopsy or the evidence to how she might have died. A young teenager is a vulnerable victim. It just seems that she was incapacitated in some way when this attack occurs because she doesn't have the typical injuries that you would see. All I knew for sure at this point was that Emery, a 14-year-old girl, was strangled to death. Who killed her and where and why, we don't know. But Emery's friends and family have theories. That's after the break. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, 
The Apollo Jim murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. To this day, Emery's family is looking for answers. Little is known about the evening she disappeared. So there are a lot of theories coming from family, friends, anyone close to the case. And given how few answers the family has gotten from the police, I think it's important to look at these theories, to try and understand what was happening in Emery's world around the time she was killed. The family members we spoke to didn't really know much about the party crew scene, but they did know about her circle of friends, which at times overlapped. Because many were minors at the time, we're not using the names of the people that family and friends have talked about. One of the theories and from information that we had at the time, somebody said that they thought her boyfriend. This is Becky again, Emery's aunt. She's talking about one of Emery's old boyfriends, who we're going to call R. A friend said that he was in a party crew at the time. R is currently serving an almost 35-year sentence at Sentinella State Prison 
for attempted second-degree murder with an enhancement for discharge of a firearm. Because they saw her fighting one time with him on the steps of his house, outside steps, and that he pushed her. And then I verified with my sister, and she said, yeah, she did come home one day with a scrape on her leg and a bruise on her arm. So then when she passed, we were thinking, well, maybe that wasn't the first time that he did it. And who knows, maybe by accident it happened. That was one of them. The other one that I think is more believable to me is those four girls. Another thing that came up was the possibility that her death had to do with a fight with her friends from a previous middle school. Some of those friends later joined the party crew scene. That uh, at one time there were her friends, and then I don't know what happened, but the, um, they didn't like her. I don't know why, you know, and I don't know the whole story. But um, they came over, and they called her name, and uh, so... My mom came out there, and Marie asked her to go out there. My mom saw a movement behind a parked car, so my mom went out of the gate to look, and she saw two more girls behind this car. Total was four. Two of them went with a bat. Her mom ended up transferring Emery to a different school. But what we heard Becky and others talk most about was that her death had something to do with her friend's ex-boyfriend, who we're going to call S., that between them, there had been some tense moments. Becky heard a story that Emery had introduced her friend to a new guy at a party. And the ex, S, had found out. And he called Emery and told her that she had no business meddling between them two. Emery was going to be sorry that she did this. We've tried to get in contact with Emery's friend, who used to date us. We called, texted, written emails, commented on social media posts, reached out to her in various ways over the course of months. While we believe she saw our messages, she never responded to us. This friend was also the person that Emery said she was going to visit on the evening she disappeared. And according to another friend, she may have been a member of the Vicious Ladies, Emery's party crew. We've also tried to find and reach out to S, the friend's ex-boyfriend, but we haven't gotten any responses to our calls and emails. And we haven't been able to confirm if he was in a party crew. We also emailed Emery's old boyfriend, R, in prison. He did not respond. It's hard to hear about all these difficult relationships in Emery's life. And while some of the details are scary, none of the stories or rumors are by any means evidence of murder. One thing that Emery's family and the LAPD agree on is that whoever killed Emery was likely someone who knew her. This is Carrie Ricard, the former detective again. To meticulously take someone somewhere, and it's kind of almost not posing them, but, but to gingerly handle them, meticulously place them. And that's kind of like handling them with a degree of respect. And a stranger wouldn't do that. But someone with maybe some remorse might. According to Carrie, there won't be any answers on our case without someone new coming forward with information. 
witnesses is going to be the primary solution factor in this case. This is not a case that's scientifically going to be solved without in the absence of of witnesses. It's not not going to happen. I'm curious, what do you want people to know about this case? Um, I would like them to know that um, if if people think the police don't care, they won't care. That's why I mentioned a lot of the resources that went into the investigation from the start. Kerry says the entire homicide squad was actually on duty that day. And so a lot of his colleagues were able to go to the crime scene. It's almost unheard of to have five homicide detectives at one homicide scene when you're not even sure it's a homicide. You know, it's always at the ready for just the right tip to come in. And your listeners, um, you know, I would want them to know that that. Just remember the three words, Central Bureau Homicide. They're the ones that have the case. In 2019, Hollenbeck Community Police Station closed down their homicide unit, and all of their cases were sent to Central Bureau. Central Bureau now handles homicides across a large part of eastern Los Angeles, like downtown L.A., MacArthur Park, Boyle Heights, and Eagle Rock. They are the ones that now have Emery's case. And because there are a, a few leads on it right now, it's been pulled off the shelf. About five months after we started calling LAPD and looking into her unsolved case, we found out that Emery's case was being worked on again with new detectives. And it, it has a, a two detectives that actually are assigned it and are working on it, but it could it can easily get cold again. The LAPD told us in an email that while it is a cold case because of its age, it's currently being worked on as fresh. They told us this was because there was new information provided, but they didn't tell us what the information is. And they told us they don't talk to the media during a fresh investigation. Harry was only on the case for about three months before his assignment changed. But he says they had already done a ton of talking to people. I think before I left, we were up to close to 30 interviews. And then, and things were just getting started on it. So I would, I would assume, my gosh, it's, it's got to be 60 or more people that have been spoken. According to Becky, there have been at least seven different detectives that have been put on Emery's case since 2006, as it's been shuffled around. Whether or not this fresh investigation will mean any new information for the family, we don't know. There remains a lot unknown about what happened to Emery, including whether her death was directly tied to the party crew scene. Even the detectives we spoke to couldn't pin down any concrete connection. We don't even know really where the crime scene is. We're calling the crime scene where the body was found. And when we when we talk about time of death, if one was to look at the death report, it would be, you know, January 25th at 9 o'clock. Well, no, she didn't die then. Mm. We don't know what time she died. I think we couldn't even verify that she even went to a rape party that night. Mm-hmm. We had conflicting information on that. So did she go or didn't she go? You know, uh, she was telling people that she was going to go. But... And when we never came up with a location, we just know it wasn't it wasn't that location where she was found. We're not sure who Emery was telling that she was going to a party. Nobody we interviewed, friends or family, told us that she was going to one that night. When Emery was found, 
She was wearing a Tinkerbell hoodie and tennis shoes. The clothes she was found with was the clothes she went missing with. And it was nothing party-ish that she would actually mm-hmm. wear to be at a party, especially if it was a party that her party crew was throwing. Brian Garcia, also known as Pookie, dated Emery. He wasn't in the party crew scene, but he attended flyer parties, and he knew the vicious ladies. Their party crew was a, a, a whole female party crew at the time, so they, you know, it was always like trying to compete and see who looked better. So they always wanted to be out there and, and just looking good, you know. Brian met Emery on an old-school party line, the kind where you dial a number and get connected with teens from all over, just random people. Before all this Instagram MySpace thing, there used to be a party line. And Emery happened to be at one of her friend's house. The phone was handed over to her. We had a conversation. The vibe was great. We kicked it off, and, you know, we exchanged numbers. He has a picture of them at Chuck E. Cheese when they went for her birthday. Their faces are smushed against each other. Pookie has his tongue out. Emery's eyes, big and dark, even in a black and white photo. Pookie couldn't believe the response when she disappeared and was found murdered. I was very upset at the media and LAPD because... The coverage was based off her being part of a party crew and a party goer. And I guess they based it off mainly because of where she was found, being in an abandoned warehouse on Boyle Heights. The fact that they based it off, oh, you know, she was at a flyer party, being a minor, you know, um, and probably... At, at a point, overdosed in some type of drugs and whatnot. Uh, it was just not right. It wasn't, she wasn't at this party. But the party crew scene became cemented as part of her public image. They're advertised uh, not only through the flyers being passed out at schools, but they are also advertised on uh, the MySpace.com. That's Joe Preciado the former detective, speaking at a 2007 press conference for Emery's case. Police say the rave was posted on the popular MySpace website. In a 2006 press release by LAPD about Emery's case, they made it a point to include the line, quote, her death may be related to underground rave parties, which are held in local abandoned warehouses common to the area and advertised on MySpace.com. The party scene... Uh, was thrown out there, and I know that uh, created a lot of uh, internet chatter, but that didn't, didn't really help the case too much. This is Joe Preciado today. When I asked him about his views of party crews 16 years later, he said, I mean, they were, in my opinion, they were basically harmless. They were victims. In our interview, he told me they even checked Emery's MySpace to look for any online messages related to partying. But it didn't help them get any closer to who killed her. And in our interview with Carrie Ricard, the other detective we spoke to, he says he didn't see any evidence of a recent party at the abandoned warehouse. That particular building wasn't 
too conducive to a rape party. Mm-hmm. There's just too much debris around where you could hurt yourself or step on something. Mm-hmm. You know, you need a, a little bit more of a space. But still, that was the one line of information that would get added to any news reports about her by LAPD and by reporters that her death might have been related to rape or underground parties. Illegal rave party. Illegal rave party. Underground parties. Flyer parties. Party crews. Flyer parties. Underground flyer party. Flyer parties. Party crews. Underground party. Like the scene was the boogeyman or some kind of monster looming in the dark. This is Pookie again. These party crews would go really hard at these parties to compete to throw the best party become a popular party crew. And I guess it came across to being put out of the gang because people started threatening people. And some party goers wouldn't go to certain events because they were scared that this party crew was going to show up, you know, stuff like that. But it was definitely not a gang. Gangs, gang adjacent, illegal parties, kids drinking... That's how the party crew scene came across in the media. I know it sounds bad. Sometimes gang members did go to parties. And there were a lot of people under 21 drinking. People did stupid things. And sometimes people got hurt. But there was another side of the party crew scene that I feel is ignored, misunderstood, and rarely talked about. That it wasn't just any teens gone wild party. It was a whole world built intentionally for us, by us. From how we designed our logos. Our logo was a Playboy bunny, but it was smoking a blunt. (laughs) It was like a South Park theme, like the, the main characters from South Park, like dressing blue with glasses. To how we secured the spot. The parties were always like somebody's grandma's backyard. Hey, shout out to the grandmas and tias for allowing us to party on their spots for like 150 bucks. And the economics of a party. That was the majority of the money that was being made in any flyer party was through the Nas. It our goals to like just do like three to four, three to five racks. That's next time. This episode was written, reported, and hosted by me, Janice Yamoka. Our show is produced and reported by Sofia Palisacar, Victoria Alejandro, and Kyle Chang, and edited by Antonia Cerejido. Additional editing by Annie Aviles. Fact-checking by Nidia Bautista. Sound design and original music composition by Kyle Murdoch. Our supervising producer is Janet Lee. Art by Julie Ruiz and Victoire Coyon. Our executive producer from Vice Audio is Kate Osborne. Our executive producers from LA Studios are Antonia Cerejito and Leo G. Our vice president of podcasts from LA Studios is Shayna Naomi Krokmal. Special thanks to the UCLA Department of Communication Archive for access to their news collection. Party Crew's The Untold Story is a production of LA Studios and Vice Audio partnership with iHeart's Michael Cultura Podcast Network. For more podcasts, listen to the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And hey, were you in a party crew? 
Send us your party flyers or photos. I'd love to see them. Even a voice message about your memories, anything. You can send us a message or a picture at partycruise at eliastudios.com. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold Blooded, the Apollo Jim murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in the Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.